waking up is not enough flourishing in the human space a podcast by Polly young eisendraft and michael berger when you peek into the cosmic unity of existence and feel the love and inspiration of awakening what happens next whether it's through meditation spiritual practice near-death experience ingesting a mind-altering substance or being born again you don't get a map for improving your messy life in this podcast Polly young eisendraft and michael berger draw on expertise in science psychology adult development psychedelics ndes dreams and buddhist practice in conversations about compassion resilience responsibility kindness and development after awakening you will learn how to chart a new path for flourishing in the human space in which waking up is important but not enough and growing up is never finished co-hosts Polly young eisendraft and michael berger bring different kinds of expertise Polly is an author psychologist union analyst longtime zen practitioner couple therapist and founder of dialogue therapy and real dialogue michael berger is an entrepreneur an expert in psychedelics a spiritual practitioner of jewishness a skeptic a real dialogue specialist and a filmmaker who is known for his documentary improbable collapse the demolition of our republic Polly and Mike will engage with each other and invite a wide array of guests who are accomplished scientists and seekers whose work lies beyond the hegemony of materialism. What is the limit on what we can learn from waking up? What do we bring back from each experience and why is it different? In this episode, Mike and Polly will return to talking about their own waking up and what the limits or constraints are in repetitive encounters. How much control do we have on waking up? If we initiate it through psychedelics or intense meditation, how much grasp is possible to sustain on the takeaway? Why are there so many differences in different settings and experiences? What makes the difference? Hi, Polly. Hi, Mike. Um, I think this is probably one of the most challenging aspects of awakening. What are some of the constraints or limits that you've experienced in your awakenings and in your meditative practice? Well, it's it's a kind of a timely question for me because I just got out of five days of retreat, and it was a Buddhist retreat that focused on something called self power and other power. And in Buddhism, self-power has to do with your own effort, your ability to work with your own mind, and other power has several different meanings. On one hand, it's the power of the group that you're working with. When they're working together as a group and everybody's focusing in the same way, there's a kind of power in concentration and in realization or awakening. And then the other sense of other would be unseen others, deities, divinities, Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, that are in the network of consciousness, but are not part of the material world. 
So in Buddhist practice, we call on self-power, which is our own ability to concentrate and to be relaxed while we're concentrating, and other power, which may be the coming through the humans that we're with, but also through the interactive field of consciousness, other beings. And in this particular retreat, we were focused on a Buddha who, who is not an incarnate Buddha and will not be incarnated. And it's the Buddha of pure light. So that is Amitabha Buddha. And Amitabha Buddha is connected with a place called the pure land. And the pure land is a place where all beings are awake. So I'm simply mentioning this as a background because the larger retreat, I did two retreats, but the larger retreat, there are about 25 of us, included a lot of psychotherapists, a lot of people that had experimented with psychedelics and people who were Buddhist meditators. I would say the minority really was Buddhist meditators. Buddhist meditation takes a lot of dedication and seriousness and discipline. And a lot of people really don't feel that they're suited to it after they've tried it a couple of times. Part of what we talked about is how can you transform or let's say bring into being an enlarged sense of compassion, kindness, or love from a shock, whether it's the kind of ontological shock of waking up experiences or the shock of a crisis in your life. Because, you know, people at the retreat, some of them had recent losses. Someone actually had to leave the retreat for a funeral of his bandmate. Uh, some people had serious illness, treatment for cancer, and many people that were there articulated that they had trauma. They had had trauma in recent past or sometimes distant past. So, you know, waking up can occur through trauma, suffering, crisis, accidents, and we've talked about that, near-death experience, illness, because these are ontological shocks and they can shock you into a different state of mind than your ordinary state of mind. Or, you know, waking up can occur as a result of taking psychedelics. I suppose only psychedelics because none of the other drugs or alcohol really lead to that. So they could, you know, result of taking psychedelics or it can occur as a result of childbirth or near-death experience. In all of these ways of waking up, how can they transform into a, let's say, bigger heart, more ability to be mindful in your relationships. And just from hearing people talk and from my own experience, I would say, number one, number one, it depends on your current conscious attitude. It depends on your capacity, my capacity or your capacity to make sense of experience, whether it's the experience of waking up or the experience of struggling to complete a task, or the experience of having conflict with somebody, any of the experiences that a human being engages in are mediated by their own level of consciousness, especially experiences that are sudden and overwhelming, you won't be able to bring them into your life without 
digesting them, integrating them, making sense of them. And that depends on your current level of consciousness or development or however you want to call it. So I'm going to stop because I've said a lot of things, but this very first thing that I, I know we'll be returning to is what is your current conscious attitude? How do you process any experience? Because that will be, I don't know if you want to call it your software or your lens or your screen or whatever, through which you will process an awakening. And I'll, I'll just add the second point. It will take time. It will take what we call time to make any use of it, even if it's a near-death experience, even if it is so profound that you believe it's changed the fabric of your being, still, the way you process it will depend on your current conscious attitude and time. So that is, you're connecting the integration after the experience, the actual process of integrating it, trying to bring it the insights, the awareness, the experience from an awakening back into everyday life. So there's a paradoxical nature to this. For one, when I hear you speaking about that it will take time, there's a bit of a paradox there because in the awakened state, there's a sense of timelessness. So we're coming from an expanded space beyond our boundaries, outside of time, we're coming back into time and space, so there's a paradox there. Much of these experiences, many of the experiences I've had are ineffable. They're beyond language. So another one of the limits or constraints on these experiences is in some cases they're non-conceptual or even pre-verbal. So we can't capture and express in language to others or even to ourselves at time, which makes integration a very challenging experience. Also, if in this expanded state, we've transcended this dual state, another challenge with language is many times we make sense by using opposites. So by the nature of thought, you have subject object, we think in terms of comparisons of opposites. And yet, when you're, you've transcended this dual perception, and you're beyond dualism, once again, it makes it very, very difficult to encapsulate this in the framework of language. And often these experiences may have content that's beyond conceptualization. And so part of what you had said about how do we make sense of this when we bring it back? I think these are some of the challenges and constraints on why it does take time why it does take discipline and work to bring this back. And to your point about bringing back, how do we embody compassion, kindness, love? So in my experience, that may arise from coming back with a sense of humility about the experience and applying curiosity to it, being open, to the exploration, being open to change and growth. So part of this, again, is about the intention that you go into 
or actually come out of the experience if the experience arises spontaneously from crisis, for example. There may not be an intention going in. But if you're a meditator or you do psychedelics, we do set intention. However, one of the, one of the dimensions we talked about is how much control do we have over this? And I would say, at least going into the awakening, unless we have a regular disciplined practice, even then, we still don't really have control. Well, the, I, I would say there are several things you're touching on that we might want to highlight. And let's just say this. We don't have control of our lives. And so when we have intense experiences, that is illustrated to us as a reality. But often then we expect when we come back to our conventional reality, that somehow we got something out of this exceptional experience that's going to allow us control more, <laughs> you know? So if people, if we, if you and I recognize, it's a good idea to plan, it's a good idea to have ideas, ideals about what you want, what you need, what people call boundaries, but they don't work. And so if you know deeply that you don't control outcomes, that you don't control your life, then you're not seeking control out of your special experiences. Unfortunately, many people do not know this. And so these kinds of Exceptional experiences can lead to greater narcissism. Feelings of being special, feelings of, you know, sense, a sense somehow that you're above other people, that now you've got it together, or I don't know. I mean, I guess even that you might, you might imagine, I don't know, because I haven't had this thing, but, you know, let's say, you know, a psychotic experience where you think you're Jesus or you think you're a divinity is problematic. And yet maybe sometimes, you know, maybe in a psychedelic experience, you can be left with some sense that you're special or different or removed from other people. And I know we've talked already about how hard it is to convey to others who have not had your experience what your experience was. And I want to come back to that, the issue of language. But let's just say, again, to put a really fine point on this, it is hard for me to convey to you the differences in our experiences on an everyday basis. You know, I mean, we just had a conversation uh, before we started the podcast. And it's difficult enough to convey differences and different experiences on everyday things because we have different windows on what's happening. Our language is not precise. I can't convey to you my exact experience or it would take hours and hours, which you know we don't have. Um, so this issue is again, just enlarged when it comes to these awakenings. You know, it's like, again, the issue of control is enlarged because we, you see it, you don't control. And the issue also of trying to convey and witness, you know, me, me trying to convey my experience to you, wanting you to witness my experience. This is an everyday issue. You know, that's, that's why we, we've been working on real dialogue, speaking for yourself, then listening, paraphrasing before you respond, remaining curious. So I just want to point out that, that some of the things that seem like they might be sort of particular to waking up really aren't. 
they're part of everyday reality, but they're, but they're kind of magnified, you know, because the experiences that people have when, when they wake up, here I'm going to use a Buddhist term because it is helpful. So in Buddhism, we live inside of three registers, all of which are all together all at once, and we're all living in them, no exceptions. One register is, is called Dharmakaya or formlessness. Like there is no form. There's not only are there no language, there's no language, there's no, there are no symbols. There is nothing that can be called anything or that can be even seen or identified as anything in this formless realm. It's what's generating all of the forms. And then there's another realm that I'm going to say a register that is called the Sambhogakaya, which is sometimes defined as the power shamanic visionary register that we live in. And in that register, we dream, we have visions, dream, I mean, dream, rapid eye movement, sleep, where we have visions in our sleep. We also experience all of these special experiences within that register whether it's a psychosis or it's a, a psychedelic trip or it's a near-death experience, when there are these images and these experiences that we're having of entities, our own embodiment or whatever, that are not conventional, that is in that register. And that, I'm just gonna say, it's the register of form and power. There's There are forms in there and there are powers and energies that are idiosyncratic. They're very individualistic. In other words, Mike and I taking the same psychedelic will not have the same experiences because we will have our own individual. And some of those might be inexpressible because no language that we have available suits them. It's very difficult to convey things that are happening in this Sambhogakaya. Then we have the other register, which in, again, Buddhism, the name is the Nomanakaya, and that is a conventional world. And in the conventional world, we have agreed upon shared language, shared symbol systems, we have shared science, we have shared inquiry, history, philosophy, all of that, everything that has been in the human record over time is in that conventional world. So those three registers we're always in. And when we have these awakening experiences where there's experience, it's going to be in this idiosyncratic or this individualistic uh, experience, really hard to convey. You know, it's, it's again, it's hard enough in the conventional world to convey what your experience is. And then you get into this other thing, very hard. So final statement about that. There isn't any way to convey it other than through the expressions in the conventional world, whether we express in music, in art, imagery, words, gestures. I don't know what else there is. You know, we jump off the side of a mountain to try to give somebody else the sense of what the experience was. We're always conveying it in the conventional world. So that's a limitation. There isn't any other way to convey, <laughs> to convey non-conceptuality 
except in the conventional world. So that makes a problem, but it is a problem that we're facing all the time. It's hard to convey our experience. You know, even conventional experience. If I tried to tell you what happened to me this morning, it would take a long time, you know, and, I, and, it, and it was an ordinary morning. So does that make sense to you? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I would just, one, one other thought popped into my mind about one other way possibly to convey it is how you embody it in your daily life. So in other words, when people interact with you and they notice a shift, for example, one of one of the experiences that I've been having recently or feedback from people who know me is that I have a lot more patience, a lot more tolerance, a lot more humility, tolerating difference. I've noticed uh, with friends who may come from judgment of others behaviors that isn't to them whatever they're thinking is acceptable or not in their minds isn't, we judge, they judge. And several people have commented to me, you don't want to do this or that based on another person's action. And no, my my behavior is not conditional on somebody else's behavior. So I, I think one of the approaches to integrating and bringing this back, well, the ineffability of this experience can't be conveyed using language, I think modeling, integrating, and embodying the insights that we've had from the experience are really, in, in my opinion, that's how I'm trying to bring this back. The arts, poetry, using paradox, metaphor, allegory. In other words, we have to cheat with language to bend it to try to convey the inner experience. But since these experiences are so entirely subjective, as you pointed out, if you take a psychedelic and I take the same psychedelic in the same setting, we're going to have very different experiences based on our past experience, our stage of development, maybe what our intention is, what past life experience we bring, expectations. And then we haven't even touched on the cultural or societal context within which all of this unfolds as well. So, you know, in a sense, you would have the Mike experience and I would have the Polly experience. So we have a kind of manifestation, a form, a Mike form, a Polly form. You know, we all are manifesting something that is distinct and we're human. So as humans, we have limitations, but we also have possibilities. And the main possibility that makes us different from, you know, other mammals, here is that we can be aware of what is happening to us and then we can express it. So our awareness of our awareness can be conveyed to someone else. How they pick up what we say is not under our control. How they pick up how we behave is not under our control. But let's say in a most fundamental way, that formless register that we live in is love. It, it, the love doesn't have a form. It is not affection. It is not just pleasure. It is the experience of being all at one, all together, all together, everything, all together, all at one, no form. And so you were saying, and I agree, the more that we can express love and love being here, our interest in the other, let's just say human, 
for now. Our interest, our knowledge, our acceptance, our willingness to go forward, our humility, our humility or modesty is so difficult for humans to learn because of the experience that we have of separateness or individuality, you know, this very manifestation of a Polly and a Mike. It's really different for the dog or the cockroach or the rock or the tree. They're not having this awareness of being Polly. The tree is not saying, I'm this kind of tree. You know, the dog isn't even saying, hey, I'm this kind of dog. And, you know, there's no other mammal doing what we do. And that's because this is the form we're in. And that's a constraint. It's a constraint. It's a limit. We're going to die. We're dying now. We're not just living now. So we're living and dying all the time. And we're aware of it. And we're limited in being able to express it. And we have these experiences of transcendence, these experiences of being one with everything or meeting special entities or you know, going through the end of the tunnel of dying or you know, so on and so forth. But very difficult to express them. But on the other hand, all of what you and I have been doing here is language. That's all we're doing right now in this meeting. You know, actually we do see each other's images on a screen, but you know, what we're expressing is in language. And so as constrained and limited as it is, we're using it. And we're, we're using language as a symbol to point to something that's beyond what we're pointing at. So I wanna, I would like to go back to something you said about your practice. Another component that I think is part of this is having a supportive community of other people on a path, the same yeah. path of awakening to share the experience part of it and to hear other people's stories of their journey, which can give us validation for our own experiences. It can inspire us and it can help to deepen our own awareness or insight into our own practice and journey. And because of all these constraints and limits, part of coming back, at least for me, is to develop a practice of having patience and compassion for myself because I'm coming back into a, I'm coming back into a consensual mass consciousness that may not be focused on waking up. I'm coming back to the sleeping world. Having compassion for oneself and patience in coming back can bring back a sense of expansiveness that can unfold over time as I'm trying to make sense and bring the significance or meaning from this awakening into my everyday life. And how can I, how can I embody it? How can I walk this way in the world? Each of our paths are unique. So yeah. we're each going to have a different way of being in the world. And it may look different for each of us, as you've pointed out. We each have this history. We have our story. We have our trauma. We've all come from different perspectives, from really unique perspectives with unique constraints. So part of having that community, I think, gives us a safe space although I don't particularly like that term, but gives us a space where I can be myself and express myself without fear of judgment, without falling into some of perhaps the traps that we get caught up in in everyday life. 
Everything you're saying is very accurate and said very precisely, but I would add one thing that I just want to really be precise about. So this idea of other power that you're referring to as community, it does include more than, you know, being able to share your story, being able to express it and so on. Because again, in a Zen or in general Buddhist setting, it means you're in the room together. So you're creating a field of consciousness together that is not expressible. So you not you don't talk about it. You don't really refer to it, but you use it because there's a power. So, you know, perhaps easier to see in a ceremony that's something like a sweat lodge because for some reason people are familiar with sweat lodges, but not Zen retreats. The, you know, in the sweat lodge, you're going in, you're creating an environment and you're there together. You know, this is not my spiritual discipline. So I'm saying this by other people's report. You are meant to share what happens to you because you're getting the effects from the group. So you have to give them back to the group. You're not keeping things personally. And I think, again, some of the mistakes that people make in being able to bring back what they've experienced is that they've taken it personally because it's unique because it's different from others. They assume that it's personal and perhaps then feel as though um, either they can't tell other people or, or something like, again, this specialness thing can come into it really quickly. You know, you're having some sort of private experience that you, you know, that, you know, you shouldn't have to share with anybody because it's yours. And there is a level at which Private mind is important. We do have a right to a private mind always. But on the other hand, if you're using something with other people, if you are in the room with them, you are using the other people because their consciousness is in the field with you. So, you know, being on Zoom is not quite the same thing. You're not, uh, not in the room, you know. So to use this power of being together does require embodiment together and then important to acknowledge it's not you it's the group together working together interacting generating from that formless source experiences that each person is seeing through their own lens it'll look different but the generation is collective and so then it does matter who you're hanging out with you know, and it does matter what they're bringing to the field of consciousness. Then it does matter how you're going to express it. And again, always with this humility, this modesty, what's it like for you? That's what it's like for me. You know, how has this been for you? Here's what it's like for me. Because language assumes that there's something that is similar. You know, I mean, we just assume we're seeing the same tree. But then when it comes to something like an awakening, we can't assume that because there isn't any same tree in that world. There is no same tree. And so then expressing this back to your friends, to your group, is a kind of responsibility to the group, to the friends, to the sangha, the community, because you're growing and developing together. It's not a private matter. And, and not to take it personally because it's not you generating this. Uh, all of those things I think are important. To, I mean, I have one final little thing to add to this, but I wanted to say, you know, 
what are you thinking about right now? We've touched on a number of things about the takeaway uh, and the limits. Well, I'm thinking about the irony involved in one sense. I, I, I move from this liminal space where I don't have boundaries, I'm outside of time, and I'm bringing it back into a community to share it in a field of consciousness with a group. So there's some irony here. And in many ways, it's like a dance, really. It's a dance of moving from this no form and trying to bring back what we find in this formless space into form, embody it, walk it in the world with all the constraints and limitations we've been discussing. So the power of having that community, the Sangha, of that unified field, I, I can see the, the power in this. And again, another one of these, the irony is we I, I have this expanded experience and now I think everybody should have it because of how I feel now, which goes to this, perhaps a feeling of superiority or a proselytizing. This, this is, I think, well-known in psychedelic circles. You, you have this expanded experience and now you believe if everybody had this experience, the world would be so much better. And what's the missing picture? Well, it depends on the person's state of consciousness, their stage they're at, their experience and intention because I would like them to have that experience doesn't necessarily mean it's an experience they want to have, right? Or even that would be helpful to them. So I, I just want to say a couple of things that I would refine a little bit that we're not outside of time and space because we're still embodied no matter what experience we're having. So we're still in time and space. We're still aging. We're still using the same the same equipment, you know, the same poly equipment, the same mic equipment, whether I'm having a near-death experience or I'm doing childbirth or I'm doing psychedelics, I'm still using the poly equipment. I, I can't get out of that equipment until I die. Until this manifestation is over, that equipment is my equipment. And so, you know, I don't want to confuse us because if you have these waking up experiences, it doesn't mean that you're manifesting outside of time and space. It it apparently is possible to manifest when we're inside of time and space without the limits of the material world if you have attained a certain level of wisdom. In the Buddhist uh, world, it's called bodhisattva. Then you can move through walls. You can move over vast say, expanses of space. I do not have that experience. I have not had that experience. But from the experiences I've had, I completely believe it's possible to demanifest and remanifest some other place. I've just had enough experience to believe that that is possible, but I don't do that. And so I, I would, any experience I'm having, I'm having it in time and space. I am essentially not a master of time and space myself. And I haven't met anyone who's had a psychedelic experience that I would say has mastered time and space you know, can demanifest and remanifest. In other words, there's a whole sort of configuration. Jesus did it. A lot of bodhisattvas do it where you dematerialize it and then you rematerialize. This is not the realm of psychedelics. Are you familiar with remote viewing? Remote viewing is a matter of consciousness. It's you're still viewing in the, in the field. Yeah. You, yes. But you're basically transporting yourself through space to another location uh, for I, your perception. Say, no, I think you're doing it through seeing and hearing. Okay, interesting. You know, I don't think it's that. So, so you know the story of Jesus. It's easy to tell. Jesus, you know, disappeared. 
the, uh, and then in a week later, he reappeared. And then his disciples had to feel his hands to make sure he was real and so on and so forth. That particular issue of dematerializing and rematerializing is one that's pretty well known in the history of Tibetan Buddhism. And again, it's a kind of sidebar. So, you know, I don't want to go into that conversation so much, but just to say that the experiences that you and I are talking about are people having experiences inside of time and space, even if they experience the formless or they experience the idiosyncratic power realm, they experience those things, but they're going to come back. Like I'm going to come back as Polly and report them. I'm not coming back as Michael or, you know, somebody else. I'm going to have my same flaws, my same difficulties and so on. So I, I want to just sort of in kind of ending this conversation, I want to point to one thing that I'm sure we're going to continue to talk about. It's very easy to say this thing, but it's, it's a very hard thing to unpack. Non-conceptual experience, non-conceptuality is very different from non-conceptual wisdom. So non-conceptual wisdom is non-duality, is the absolute understanding, integration, experience of continued non-duality. That is non-conceptual wisdom. And it is hard for humans to develop that. And isn't this part of the objective of the snow globe meditation is to dissolve that sense of there's an in here and an out there? Yes, it is. It is. And so it's a step on the path of non-conceptual wisdom. And so is awakening. Awakening can be a step on the path towards becoming wise in a non-conceptual way or it can be a step on the path of narcissism where you believe you're special, you believe you have special powers, you think you know more than other people, you think you have to proselytize to them. And that can then create destructive interactions with other people that are not wise at all and that won't lead to greater wisdom for but you or other people. Yeah. Does this connect back with the concept of self-power? So when you're bringing this back, again, there's there's this irony of how I can become, I can grow towards superiority and narcissism and inflation of ego, or I can work towards deflating my sense of isolation, separateness, and to use the term you brought up earlier, to try to move through the world with love. Yes, yes, that's perfectly put. That's exactly right. So, so there are some mm, concerns or I'm not sure what the right word would be, but you know, when you engage in the waking up process, or sometimes it engages you, it's it's really important to know that you are at risk for greater narcissism. Or you've perhaps opened the door to non-conceptual wisdom, which will always be expressed as your awareness of your interdependence, your own, you know modest perspective, your own absolute gratitude towards the others, it will be expressed that way. The non-conceptual wisdom will be expressed as you giving yourself away. Whereas, you know, the, the greater narcissism will be expressed typically as you protecting yourself. 
or you know or isolating or feeling like unseen or angry or whatever you know the narcissism is a is that feeling of being separated off and either for reasons of superiority or inferiority so there's an authenticity that we we can develop as we bring and embody some of these qualities, humility, curiosity, an expanded sense of wonder, awe, appreciation, and gratitude, love. and love. love. Yes. Yeah. And that because this is a unique individual path, looking at some of the limits or constraints that we've discussed can help us, we can use those to deepen our experience and almost as a guide or a motivator to try to understand, instead of seeing these as, as hard limits, we can, we can choose to view them as an invitation for a deeper exploration and deeper growth. Absolutely. And, you know, you can also use the, this sort of guide towards, you know, greater sort of selflessness, not in the sense that you lose your boundaries, but that you want to give and give back versus greater narcissism in which you're, you're sort of feeling superior or separated out. You can kind of use that as a, as a test case to yourself. And of course, you know, your greater compassion, kindness, love, is also for yourself. I mean, it's not just separated out for other people. So having that awareness of that capacity then to expand your heart after awakening versus expanding your ego after awakening, that will give you a little bit of a guideline and, and you can really start to respect the constraints. The constraints are being human. And this is how you got here. You got here as a human through another human. And you need to have that tremendous gratitude for all that brought you here as a human, because you wouldn't be doing any of this, you know, if you were a rock or a cockroach or whatever. So it's a matter of respecting the constraints because you are human and you got here as a result of other humans, but also recognizing there can be red flags. So maybe uh, as a final note on this episode, what we're moving towards in future discussions is how the different levels of consciousness, either states or stages of development, will influence this awakening process. And maybe for this episode, I guess my final thought would be, or recommendation at least, would be that I try to embrace this process, this journey with an open heart, a curious mind, and a willingness to embrace and be comfortable with the unknown. I think that's one of the biggest challenges, which goes back to the, one of the questions we started with about control. Not only do we not have control over awakening, but through awakening, we realize we don't have control. So letting go of the notion that I'm trying to steer or control perhaps makes it easier for me to be present to what's arising without pushing, pulling, projecting, trying to shape it. So living in this openness to what arises is incredibly challenging when we come back to our old conditioned habits and emotional patterns. 
So, you know, I would, I would say yes to all of that. And I would add really deep gratitude for being human because we come back, we're always there really. All of this sort of openness and transcendence and so on is being experienced in the human form. And we've been helped by other humans from the day that we were given birth. It's been human, human, human. And so to be grateful that we're human, we're not gods. And we can dip into the God realm, but we come back to the human realm. And there are real advantages to being humans. And I think as we, on further podcasts, talk about what is the design of being human that lays out some pretty big, let's say, guidelines for moving through adult development to develop as adults. And some of that interacts with these ontological shocks of awakening or crises. But then also there's certain developmental guidelines for bringing back the love, you know, and the love is got to be some kind of love for humans. And so. Well, you're human. Well, I'm saying the love is not just an expression. It goes back to the self-compassion. Right. And, and learning how to love ourselves as we are imperfectly embodied, going through this human experience yes. with all the travails and all the pain and bringing this into the world with humility and embodying love is probably one of the greatest challenges. It's one of the uh, greatest challenges. Of being and human. And being human allowed you to be aware of your awareness. And to go through the process and the journey as an individual that we're each on. And I, we may or may not eventually touch on it, but in one sense, it's as if we've chosen this embodiment to learn these lessons. It's so we'll, one we'll possible back, way. We'll come back to that. We'll come yeah. back to that someday. This yes. has been great. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks, Polly. Thank you for listening to Waking Up Is Not Enough. To explore further, go to www.realdialogue.com, where you can download our free app and become a part of our online community. Purchase any course in the Real Dialogue app, and you'll receive an email invitation to our monthly conversation, where Polly and Mike hold an Ask Me Anything monthly on Tuesdays. Waking Up Is Not Enough is produced by Chris Coltrane and is available on all major podcast channels.